right, good morning, church. Um, it's a joy to be with you this morning and to be able to open God's Word. Um, would you go ahead and join with me um, just for a moment of prayer here before we dive into this, this beautiful psalm. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, for your Word, Lord. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. Lord, you're a God who reveals himself to us, Lord. And um, we ask that you would do just that um, this morning um, through Psalm 63. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful, this beautiful psalm. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you have used it to um, encourage my heart and to um, reveal yourself to me just over the, the course of the past week. Um, Lord, the way you have blessed me with this word, thank you for that. And that's my prayer is that this morning that you would use this word um, to um, build and bless your church, Father. Lord, I pray that you would use these words, which we believe to be eternal and absolutely true, Lord, and we ask that you would write them on our hearts, Lord, that they would shape us and that they would form us as people. We love you, and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. What do you want? What do you want? This morning, as you are sitting there at home or wherever you are, I ask you just that simple question. What is it that you want? You know, one of the few bright spots for me personally over the last couple of months, the last month specifically, has been the last dance. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this docu-series. Um, it's, a, it's a series that has been produced by ESPN and Netflix, which gives us sort of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the life of basketball legend Michael Jordan, with a specific focus on his final season with the Bulls. I grew up a huge Bulls fan, a huge basketball fan. Um, as a child growing up, my walls were plastered with Michael Jordan posters. If you go into my office right now, you will see the famous Wings poster, which has been in that office for uh, probably at least the last 10 years. Huge, growing up a huge Michael Jordan fan. Countless hours were spent by me in my driveway shooting baskets, trying to be like Mike. I don't watch a ton of TV, but this man... This, 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 t this TV episode has drawn me in. As has really pulled back the curtain on, on a man, on a team, that has been placed on a pedestal for so long, for so many years. Um, both in this series, his, his greatness is confirmed as a basketball player, but also, one of the things I appreciate much about this series is there's a great, a great bit of his humanity that is revealed. Throughout the series, Jordan emerges not just as a phenomenal basketball player, but as a man who is driven, hyper-focused, and extremely competitive. I, I was struck in one of the earlier episodes as Jordan articulates where this competitive fire comes from. And what he says, essentially, is that this, this competitive fire, this, this desire that he has to, to compete on any level and to win, really comes from a desire. A, a desire to gain the love and attention of his father. This basketball legend was made out of a deep, 
wanting in his soul, a longing. It was his desire to win the approval of his father that made him into one of the greatest basketball players, winners of all time. One of the things that that makes Psalm 63 so helpful is that it teaches, and and throughout this series, hopefully you've, you've been able to see this, is that it teaches us a great deal about what it means to be human. As we have considered these psalms over the past couple of weeks, my hope is that our preaching of God's word has impacted and and shaped your theology, the way that you think about who God is. Through his word and by the power of his spirit, God reveals his nature, his true nature to us. His power and his majesty, his, his love and kindness, his grace and mercy, his, his justice and his plan. As we dig into this book, God shows us himself. But we don't simply gain an understanding of who God is. We are also given a picture of who we are. A window into our own soul and condition. A mirror by which we are able to see who we are. We see this clearly this morning in Psalm 63 as David pours out his soul in a sense. Psalms are so often songs of personal testimony. We see that here this morning in Psalm 63. As a result, when we study this book, we develop a biblical theology as well as a biblical anthropology. We understand how to think biblically about who God is, and we also are able to understand biblically who we are as human beings. And what we learn from this particular psalm this morning is that just like desire was at the very core of who Michael of, of what Michael Jordan's identity is. The same can be said of us. That we are all shaped and formed by that which we want most. That which we love. So, as we consider Psalm 63 together this morning, sort of the the big idea, brothers and sisters, the, the thing that I want to encourage you to do with this chapter of the Bible What I believe Psalm 63 calls us to do is to pay attention to what we want. Pay attention to what you love because it matters. In Psalm 63, we encounter a thirsty soul. See it in verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. To help us in our study of Psalm 63, I'm going to try and and shed some light around two different questions. I'm going to try to answer two different questions. First, what is, we encounter this thirsty soul. The question we want to ask is, what is this thirst? How do we understand this thirst? And the second question we'll try to explore together is, how is this thirst satisfied? First, what is this thirst? I'll make a few observations about the nature of this thirst. The first thing I want to point out to you is that this thirst is a desperate thirst. 
It's a desperate thirst. Notice the heading of the psalm. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David is on the run. Context is important here, folks. Understanding the, the history, what is happening when, when David is writing these words. David is finding himself on the run. He's in the wilderness fleeing for his life. It's a common understanding that David is, is not running. Many of us think of David fleeing and we think instantly of Saul. But it's common understanding and interpretation to think that this is actually not Saul he's running from. But rather it's Absalom, his own son. I believe that's the right interpretation. Because in verse 11 you'll see it says, But the king shall rejoice in God, which tells us that this would have to have been written after David had been crowned as king. We are told in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 6, that Absalom, his son, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So while David is on the throne, while David is king of Israel, his own son steals the hearts of of Israel, and we know that he had conspired not just to steal the hearts of Israel, but really he was after the throne. As a result, David fled from the city and sought refuge in the wilderness. Can you imagine fleeing from your city, running for your life because your own son wants you dead? Imagine the pain. The agony that David is experiencing as he seeks refuge in the wilderness. It makes complete and total sense that this language would sound desperate. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and barren land where there is no water. David's circumstances are about as bad as they can be. But notice what it is that David is longing for. What it is he is seeking in the wilderness. What David wants. He's not desperate for his throne. He's not desperate for his circumstances to be changed. In the wilderness, running for his life. He's not even desperate for relief from his circumstances. David is desperate for God. His deepest longing, the deepest longing of David's life is not the power and the comfort that, that he once knew as king. When everything else around him has been, has been stripped away from him, his power, his comfort, his friends, his family, the thing that David wants the most is God himself. I wonder if you can relate to this sort of wilderness feeling, experience that David is living in. Everything around him is crumbling. His life seems to be sort of teetering on the edge. He's surrounded by things that are unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Life for David is not fun. And tomorrow is not certain. That's David's wilderness. I wonder if you can relate. Maybe now, maybe sometime in the past. What I want you to see 
is that it is in the wilderness that David's deepest desires are most clearly revealed. It is in the wilderness when everything else has been stripped away. It becomes obvious what David wants the most. And the same can be said of us. The same can be said of us. Secondly, I want you to notice, not just is this thirst a, a, a thirst of desperation, it's also a, a thirst of urgency. David says, earnestly, I seek you. Earnestly. Some of your translations may say early. The word used here is a word for dawn, early in the morning. First thing after rising in the morning that is on this man's mind is the Lord. From the moment he wakes up, this is what he wants. He wants God himself. It's no wonder that this psalm is used regularly throughout church history as a morning prayer to help us remember that this is how it ought to be, right? While sleep brought rest to the earthly body for David, he, he woke in the morning with a heavenly longing. It is in these first quiet hours of the morning that David must meet with his God to face the new day with hope and with purpose David can't wait. He, his, this thirst is urgent. He wants it now. Thirdly, I want to point out about this thirst is not just is it desperate thirst, not just is it a urgent thirst. If we're honest with ourselves, as we read Psalm 63, it's also a strange thirst. It's a strange thirst. This idea of being thirsty for, for many of us in the West is, is, probably a bit un, is probably a bit unfamiliar. The way David talks about thirsting is probably for many of us in the West a bit unfamiliar. Working in the yard, I, I may have said once or twice, I'm dying for a drink of water. But I don't really know anything about genuine thirst. The type of thirst that, that leaves my lips parched and cracked and my throat burning. My entire body drained and dehydrated, full of pain because of genuine thirst. Some of you may know that. I certainly don't. Most of us, this condition is, is unfamiliar. So when David describes his, his state of total desperation, I'm, I'm forced to ask myself... Does this describe me? Does this thirst, this longing, does this, this longing that David has in the wilderness, does it describe the condition of my soul? My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and sweaty land where there is no water. Does, does that describe my condition? I ask you, does this language sound strange to you? I think for, for many of us it does. 
And let me submit to you that if this sounds strange, to, to crave God so much, such singular, desperate, urgent focus, that if this sounds strange to you this morning, let me submit to you, it's not because you don't know thirst in a spiritual sense. And it's not because you have drunk deeply from the wells of God and are now satisfied. If this sounds strange to you this morning, let me submit the reason it sounds strange is because you have sipped from the fountains of this world for far too long. You have allowed your soul to be filled from the small things that this world has to offer. You let your thirst settle on things like material prosperity, power, prestige, popularity, position, money, sex, image, on and on we can go. If this language sounds strange to you, odds are it's because you are settling for where you drink and try to quench your thirst. If that's the case, this language will certainly sound strange. It will sound unfamiliar. It's a strange, strange thirst for some of us. Fourthly, point out about the thirst is that it's personal. It's a personal thirst. You can, you can, you can read and pick up on the, the personal language that David uses as he writes these words. The very first words, Oh God, you are my God. These words lay the foundation for everything that follows in the psalm. These are not words of a man who is unacquainted with God. Rather, they are the words of a man who is standing on a rock. A rock that has proven firm throughout the fiercest storms and the darkest nights. Look at verses 2 and 3. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. David has, has experienced God. He, he knows God. And it has given David, this experience has given David a memory that even now in the wilderness is sustaining his life. The importance of memory in the life of David cannot be understated. He has, he has seen the beauty of God and witnessed firsthand the power of God. Even the memory of experiencing God's presence in the midst of God's people through the act of public worship is so powerful that it causes David to say when God feels distant, when he's not in the sanctuary, but in the wilderness, this memory causes David to say, your steadfast love is better than life. And there's nothing else in this world that I want than you. This taste of God's glory, this glimpse of his glory and his power gave David an appetite that will sustain him even in the darkest days. This is one of the reasons, once again, why, why so many of us lament not being able to gather together for worship. Because that's what public worship is. The people of God coming together to worship God. To experience, to, to encounter the living God. 
some ways we're in the wilderness right now because we are, I'm preaching to an empty room. No offense for the few of you that are here. But in some, of, some sense, that's exactly what we're experiencing. And this memory, I just, I mean, to me, it's a great challenge. Is this how you view worship, <laughs> you know? And my, my hope would be that you have tasted that, that you have, that that has left you craving, longing for more of it. And I just dream of the day when we come together again. And we raise one voice as we worship and cry out to God. Uh, one of the places that my family likes to travel is San Francisco. We have a family member that lives in San Francisco, and so we go there pretty regularly. The first time that, that we went, it was around my wife and, and my anniversary. So I had a friend who's from the area, and I asked, um, you know, just for a good restaurant to be able to treat my wife to. And he, he put me on to, to a, a wonderful establishment called The Stinking Rose. I was suspect, as you might be as you hear the name, The Stinking Rose. It's a, it's a nickname for garlic, right? It's a garlic themed steakhouse it's completely amazing every dish is just layered with perfectly roasted garlic you just pick up the garlic and spread it like a knife across your steak or lobster or whatever it is i mean it's just mounds of it's amazing it's amazing so good the first time we went you know we did the normal thing we we checked out the menu online this looks good i think i might get this kind of get an idea for the price right well, after feasting, after tasting what the stinking rose has to offer, my appetite for it is completely changed, right? Now when we go to San Francisco, it's, it's pathetic, but it's true. Our entire vacation is planned around when me and my wife are going to go to the stinking rose. That's how good it is, all right? And, and we see sort of a similar thing happen here with David. He has tasted and he has seen the the glory and the power the beauty the majesty and the splinter of of the almighty and it's increased his appetite for him and really folks this is this is our prayer during this strange unusual time of COVID-19 this is what, what I have been praying for our church for the last two months, that God would give us in this season of sort of wandering in the wilderness, that God would increase our appetite for him. So what is this thirst? This thirst is desperate, it is urgent, it is strange, and it is deeply, deeply personal. Second question. How is this thirst satisfied is the psalmist just a desperate man who's perpetually craving and longing yet never satisfied thirsting after a god who remains distant and out of reach and unconcerned is that how this relationship works You'll notice in the first half of Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4, it seems as if while David longs for God, God himself isn't there. And this fainting after God is what it looks like to worship God when he seems distant. But look how it changes. Look at verses 5 through the rest of the chapter. Look how the language changes changes my soul 
will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David's hope is resting on a certainty that God will not leave him hanging. That God will not disappoint him. David needs one thing in life. Not just truths about God or memories of God. He wants God himself. And that keeps David going. It is his confidence that this thirsting after God will be satisfied. God won't hold himself back. When I remember you, verse 6, upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. David recognizes that, that God's loving kindness is his current reality. God is with him even in the wilderness. That he has not abandoned him. He has not forgotten him. And that the reality, this reality of God's presence actually transcends David's current circumstances. Man, isn't that some good news? That even though God seems far off and unconcerned, could not be further from the truth, folks. God is present. As a result, because God has committed himself to David in this way, David responds by proclaiming the beautiful verse, verse 8. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. What a picture. A soul clinging to God. The, the object, the singular object of his affection and desire and longing. That soul attached and clinging to God while God's right hand holds him close. Just ask for a moment, do you know this? Is this, does this describe your relationship with God, holding fast to God while he holds you close to him? Folks, this is not the only place in the Bible that, that we, we, we hear about a thirsty people. Psalm 42 Earlier, as the deer pants, a familiar passage for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This thirsty language is used throughout Scripture. Isaiah 44 is another good place where it pictures God's plan for redeeming God's people as God quenching their thirst. In verse 3 in Isaiah 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. What an amazing promise and a, and a wonderful picture of what, what is waiting for God's people. Well, some 700 years after those words were written, Jesus would come to us. God himself would come and live among his people. And in John chapter 7, Jesus would stand before Jerusalem and he would declare, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me 
and drink. Listen to this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The invitation that Jesus extends to us is to come to him and to let our thirst be satisfied. Let him pour out his his living water into our lives. And the result is that from us, from God's people, will flow rivers of living water. It is through Jesus, this mighty Savior, that our deepest longings, our ultimate thirst, is finally and truly satisfied in a way that nothing else that this world has to offer can even touch or come close. He came and poured out his life so that that we who are sinners, who are thirsty, who, who often recognize that we are navigating a dry and barren land looking for something that he is what we've been looking for. Jesus has the ability to satisfy your deepest longings. So in closing, I simply want to ask the question again. What do you want? What do you want? can't watch the last dance and not be struck by Jordan's love for basketball, his love for winning. I mean, I love the game of basketball. I love the game of basketball. Pretty competitive person myself. I love to win. But as I listen to that man sit in the chair and talk about his love for basketball and his love for winning... I have to ask myself, do I really love this sport? Do I really love this sport? Folks, coming to Psalm 63 this morning, we should find ourselves responding in a similar way. As we see a man bare his soul, as we get a glimpse of what is inside David, what drives David, his longing, we have to ask the question, Do I really love God? And this is the fundamental question. What do I want? This is the fundamental question of Christian discipleship. The Gospel of John is the very first question that Jesus asks his disciples in chapter 1, verse 35 and 38, as we see the disciples with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. The disciples turn around and see who it is. And Jesus' words to them at the very beginning of their spiritual formation, the beginning of their discipleship journey, the question he poses to them is the question I'm asking you. What are you seeking? What is it you want? This question lies at the very heart of not just what it means to be Christian, but also what it means to be a human. It's a question that Jesus asks us this morning. What is it that you want? At the, at the end of the Gospel of John, when, when, when Jesus comes to Peter in this wonderful, beautiful act of restoration, this errant Peter, Peter, Peter who dropped the ball, who let Jesus down, he comes to Peter at the end of the Gospel and he poses the exact same question. Do you 
love me. Folks, as we look at Psalm 63 together, we have to ask that question. Do I want God? And, and some of us may sense that there are other things in there that are competing for our attention, for our affection, for our love and our desire, that are competing with God for that place in our heart. And what we need to do is we need to ask God to increase our appetite for him. Some of you this morning have never tasted and have never seen the goodness and the glory of God. And the invitation is extended to you. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Jesus' hand is extending out to you. And he's offering you a life that nothing else in this world can offer. What is it that you want? What I'd like to do here, just for a moment, this will be weird. It's weird, it's unfortunate that it's going to be weird, but it will be weird in, in our culture. Silence is not usually an acceptable thing. But I wanna, what I want to encourage you to do is that as you at home, with family, wherever you are, by yourself, wherever you are, I want you to ask that question. I'm going to give you just a moment. The band will come up here shortly. I'll give you just a moment of just silence and reflection. Hopefully Psalm 63 is open and you're looking at it. I want you to just ask that question. What is it that I really want in life? And if you notice that it's not God or that, that he's you know, running <laughs> maybe a close second, I want you to pray to God this morning. God, increase my appetite for you.